Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Christina Sauter, professor of law at Louisiana State University, and Sergio Gramito Ricci, lecturer at Monash University. We'll be discussing their article, Corporate Governance Gaming, The Power of Retail Investors, which is forthcoming in the Nevada Law Journal. I'll have a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Christina, Sergio, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Andrew. Over the last six months or so, there seems to be a new story when it comes to retail investors, which I want to really focus this conversation on. But before we get to that new story, this emergence of meme investing, uh, I want to talk about maybe the old story. Over the last 40, 50 years or so, what's been the state of retail investment? Has there been much of it, at least compared to institutional investment? How have retail investors generally behaved in the markets? And to the title of your paper, Corporate Governance, have retail investors really been engaged in corporate governance up to this point? I think to really get the bigger picture, we should initially look further back to, say, the 1950s. In the 1950s, retail investors accounted for 90% of direct share ownership. But over the years, this number has declined. For example, in 1975, retail investors accounted for approximately 70% of share ownership. But then by 1985, it was just 54%. The decline in direct retail investing in the 1980s and 1990s is likely due at least in part to the growth of funds and 401ks. By early 2010, retail investors accounted only for about 30 to 40% of share ownership, with there being even less in larger corporations. That 30% figure has pretty much held constant to the present day. We can also add that we have probably witnessed a decline in direct investing in 1980s and 1990s while institutional investors were growing. And institutional investors' engagement has been facilitated by market providers and intermediaries that offer a number of services that help institutional investors vote their shares. Both regulation and market practices have nurtured the growth of market providers such as proxy advisory services, which allow institutional investors to stay engaged with corporate governance. In short, the infrastructure that market providers and intermediaries provide to institutional investors not only helps institutional investors that are required to vote the shares in their portfolios to be compliant with the relevant regulation, but also significantly empowers institutional investors in the corporate governance arena. Just to put things in perspective, when in 1932, Burley and Means published The Modern Corporation and Private Property, in light of the dispersed ownership structure characterizing that era, they focused their attention on managerial agency costs. Whereas in relation to the current corporate governance scenario, professors Gilson and Gordon have highlighted the agency costs of institutional intermediaries. Against this backdrop, retail investors have not received a lot of attention. 
However, their role in corporate governance should not be forgotten. As Professor Jill Fish wrote, voting results should convey the views of all shareholders. And I fully agree with her. In addition, as she puts it, although institutional investors hold the majority of voting stock in publicly traded companies, retail shareholders own enough shares to make a difference. In many cases, a voting threshold of 20% to 30% can have a critical effect on the issuer. We still have to think about retail investor. We should probably give them a little bit more attention than the attention that has been given to them lately. That's the old story, one in which institutional investors are the majority of the shareholding base of companies. They have the majority of the voting power. They have an entire infrastructure in place to facilitate their engagement with corporate governance. But at the same time, retail investors have had a fairly significant beachhead all along in the shareholder base of public companies. That's the old story. But I think we've all witnessed this year, particularly with the rise of Robinhood and Wall Street Bets on Reddit and the rise of the mean stock phenomenon in general, that there is maybe a new kind of retail investor in town. And you actually dub this type of new retail investor, the wireless investor. Could you introduce the concept of the wireless investor to the listeners? Who are these investors, just demographically speaking? What motivates them? And how are they different from earlier generations of retail investors? So wireless investors are millennial and Gen Z investors. And we call them wireless investors because both generations are so digitally savvy. Millennials grew up during an explosive growth of technology and social media. They are known as cord cutters as they disengage from TV and traditional media. Gen Z are cord nevers. They've never known a time without technology and have had constant access to social media. They prefer to communicate using their smartphones, which they've had from a very young age. Both Gen Z and millennials prefer gathering online and socializing online. They're also extremely comfortable sharing personal issues online, and they tend to bond with complete strangers online. They gather online for entertainment as well, uh, particularly coming online to game. So two out of three millennials play video games each month, while 90% of Gen Z are gamers. They're not just playing games online, but they're also watching video games being played online and communicating with others while playing video games online. So we're talking about a significant online presence for both millennials and Gen Z. The Great Recession played a defining role in the lives of millennials as they were just entering the job market or getting their careers off the ground when the Great Recession took place. Gen Z also saw their parents, which is generally Gen X, being very negatively affected by the Great Recession. So both millennials and Gen Z blame the Great Recession on baby boomers. They generally have a distrust of Wall Street. Millennials and Gen Z blame other financial inequities, climate change, and social injustices on the baby boomers as well. So these characteristics play a role in how wireless investors invest and how we believe they will participate in corporate governance. What we've seen are online venues like Discord and Twitch, which originally started out as a place to play, watch, and discuss gaming, now being used for other forms of discussion and coordination. This includes ways to obtain investing tips and advice. It also provides these groups of ways to coordinate their investments. And of course, we've seen wireless investors 
use other forms of social media like Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and so on. In fact, wireless investors are much more comfortable using social media to obtain investing advice than going through more traditional means. They prefer to invest directly using online brokerages in the United States like Robinhood, Fidelity, Webull, and so on. And they're very attracted to these apps because of their inclination to gather online and to use their phones to communicate. Another thing that sets wireless investors apart from older generations like Gen X and boomers is how much they value ESG. Surveys have revealed that both millennials and Gen Z factor ESG into their investment decisions and also that they believe that companies that consider ESG in their business decisions will perform better over the long run. I should also say here that surveys have also revealed that wireless investors are willing to take some cut in profit if they believe the company in which they are investing is more environmentally and socially responsible. This is a big deal as millennials and Gen Z are expected to have a lot of power fiscally in coming years. For example, millennials will be inheriting up to as much as $68 trillion in assets over the next two decades. This has been called the Great Wealth Transfer as it's the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in history. And a Bank of America study from 2020 says that Gen Z's income is expected to grow fivefold to $33 trillion by 2030 and will surpass millennial income by 2031. In addition to that, the Great Wealth Transfer is also expected to add to Gen Z's wealth as well. So we're talking about two generations who come together online who have will have a lot of power fiscally in the coming years. You paint a picture of Gen Z and millennials really becoming a financial force. And in some ways, they've made their latent financial power really felt uh, this past year in, in January, February, when we saw the rise of meme stocks that might fit into some of these investing themes, some of these demographic themes. Could we talk a little bit about the tumult that we saw in the markets? What prompted this phenomenon? What is the phenomenon in the first place? And what was wireless investors? What was their role in it? What we were seeing is that during the pandemic, particularly during the lockdown in 2020, people started focusing more on investing. They seem to be drawn to the Reddit subreddit Wall Street Bets as a form of entertainment. Sometimes they even learned about Wall Street Bets and Robinhood via gaming. We also saw people investing some or all of their stimulus checks directly into stocks such as GameStop. People have been posting about GameStop on Wall Street Bets, and gradually more and more people had jumped on board and invested in GameStop in 2020. Many seemed to be drawn to the company because they had grown up going to GameStop and getting their games and their gaming consoles there. So they were very familiar with the company. Even though GameStop was hit hard by the pandemic because it is a brick and mortar store, people, really wireless investors, had a lot of confidence in it. And this confidence really only grew when Ryan Cohen, the founder of the very successful online pet company Chewy, invested in GameStop in August of 2020. We also saw the animosity that wireless investors have for Wall Street playing a significant role here as well. As more people invested in GameStop and posted about it, namely on Wall Street Bets, they knew that GameStop was heavily shorted, and at least some portion of these new investors was hoping to force a short squeeze. So the idea to invest in GameStop and other stocks like BlackBerry, Nokia, Bed Bath Beyond, AMC, and so on, continued to be diffused via Wall Street Bets and then other social media venues. And also mass media began to pick up on GameStop during the short squeeze in January, which then further diffused these investing ideas 
and it also attracted more investors. So from GameStop, wireless investors have focused on AMC Entertainment. And with AMC Entertainment, we're seeing both investing in corporate governance, as we had predicted in our article, being played out. We're seeing AMC being discussed on numerous social media platforms. It has at least one subreddit dedicated to it. It has various Facebook groups, a discourse channel, a number of YouTubers are covering it. And we're also seeing mass media, including TV and newspaper, covering AMC more and more. And more people seem to be investing as it's being discussed more widely. I'll let Sergio add some things here. Well, with respect to the role of wireless investors in corporate governance, Christina and I in Corporate Governance Gaming discuss uh, how wireless investors can mount a movement that could cause lasting changes in uh, corporate governance and in the corporate sector. By using the technological infrastructure, wireless investors can reduce transaction costs to buy, hold, and sell shares. As an example, we can think of the role that trading apps can play with respect to this. Reduced costs associated with holding and trading shares facilitate this intermediation, which means that direct investing in the stock market becomes easier and more affordable. And in particular, when I say more affordable, I'm referring to transaction costs. In fact, also diversifying a portfolio becomes easier and more affordable. Online communications, for example, on social media, online forums, and other online communication platforms make accessing and sharing information easier. Staying informed can also be entertaining using online communication. We can think of the use of online platforms that gamers make. Importantly, online communication facilitate collective action. They reduce costs for coordination. Myriad people can appreciate working as a team towards common goals. The average citizen can be part of the action. This makes these initiatives inclusive, and these inclusive initiatives can unleash an unprecedented amount of collective power. These impactful collective initiatives are not limited to trading. In fact, they can prove even more impactful when they involve voting. In addition, I typically point out that retail investors who coordinate their voting efforts online decouple their economic interest, which is individual, from their governance goals, which are collective. Wireless investors can pursue ESG goals with very little impact on the short-term performance of their individual economic interests. Now, just to be clear, I think that this phenomenon should be studied and addressed, but I also think it's important to point it out. Increased retail investors' power means that companies will be compelled to communicate with retail investors. That means that companies will have an incentive to make themselves more understandable to the average person. Successful collective initiatives are likely to draw more participants into future initiatives. Individuals have different thresholds. Sometimes the cost and benefits of two alternative choices depend on how many other individuals choose which alternative. For an individual at the threshold, the benefits of making the decision exceed the costs of doing so. This means that the phenomenon could snowball when a critical mass of individuals joins. 
More participants means more collective power. As wireless investors and other retail investors engage with corporate governance, the voice of average citizens become more powerful in corporate governance. Accordingly, the corporate sector will likely become more accountable to the average citizens. Moreover, institutional investors will likely start voting with wireless investors and other retail investors in order to avoid a reduction of asset under management. In fact, people could switch to direct investing in the stock market or bring their money to more ESG-committed funds if they are not satisfied by the way funds in which they have invested pursue the goals that investors believe are particularly important to them. This would result in a significant paradigm shift in corporate governance. Perhaps more importantly for those who are interested in ESG goals, wireless investors and retail investors could mount and lead a movement able to bring business corporations to serve the interests of a wider range of shareholders and the planet. If we were to imagine a platonic ideal of corporate governance, the picture we might have in our minds is of the annual shareholder meeting. If we're to have a slightly less idealistic view of corporate governance and the engagement of shareholders in governance, it might be a shareholder thoughtfully reading a proxy statement and marking his or her ballot. That, of course, is an ideal that has diminished over time. It's a much more mechanized process these days. But things have changed, perhaps, and we've now gone through our first proxy season of this meme stock wireless investor era. And I know that you both have been watching some of the proxy processes and the annual general meeting of some of these companies that have been so focused on by wireless investors like AMC, for example. I wonder if you could talk about what you've seen uh, over the last couple months in terms of how wireless investors have been engaging in corporate governance, how they're engaging in proxy season, in annual meetings, and how companies have been responding to their presence. Has it been a welcoming response? Has it been an uncertain response? Has it been even a little bit of an alienated response? Or how has that gone, more or less? Andrew, I think this is a great question. And I wonder whether perhaps it's a little bit early to give a very structured answer, because, of course, in answering this question, We cannot forget that the current general share ownership structure still has institutional investors as the main actor in this movie, right? So in other words, we have to keep in mind that institutional investors hold most of the shares if we look at the markets. And we also have to keep in mind the mechanics that typically characterize corporate governance in this era. In fact, Christina and I are studying the mechanics of shareholder meetings in particular to see how the current structure of shareholder meetings is framed and whether possible legislative reforms could enhance the engagement of retail investors. Let's say that at the moment, in order to determine whether anything has changed, we should probably look at specific companies rather than at the old corporate sector. We can look, for example, at companies in which retail investors are able to make a difference. And AMC is one of these companies. But on a general level, we should also remember that the engagement of retail investor 
is becoming more and more important. And their participation in shareholder meetings for companies is important not only because it's important that all shareholders can convey their views. It's also important because companies that have a majority of retail investors need to keep them engaged and need to incentivize their participation in shareholder meetings in order to obtain quorum. And this is becoming a very important topic in corporate governance, and it will be more and more relevant. If we look at the AMC shareholders meeting, we see that quorum is a very important topic today. What do you think, Christina? I think you're exactly right, Sergio. So AMC, which you've alluded to, is now over 80% owned by retail investors. We've seen a number of things occur with AMC with respect to wireless investors and their role in corporate governance, particularly in the shareholder meeting that just occurred last week. First off, the CEO of AMC, Adam Aaron, has directly sought out retail investors and regularly communicates with retail investors via social media, particularly Twitter. He also has given very long interviews on YouTube trying to reach the AMC shareholder base. Another really significant development with respect to AMC is, of course, the shareholders meeting. It was originally scheduled for May 4th of this year. Then on that date, the meeting was postponed to July 29th. In postponing the meeting, Aaron said that AMC was doing so that retail investors could have their voices heard. Also on May 4th, AMC amended its bylaws to reduce its shareholder meeting quorum from a majority to one third. So that leads me to believe that AMC was possibly concerned that it was not going to be able to obtain a quorum for its meeting. As an aside here, we've also seen a number of other companies reduce its quorum requirement, and we've seen at least one company this proxy season not obtain a quorum at its shareholders meeting. In postponing its meeting, AMC set a new record date to June 2nd of 2021. As of that date, AMC said that it had just over 513 million shares of common stock outstanding. For the July 29th meeting, it originally had a proposal on the agenda to amend the Certificate of Incorporation to authorize 25 million more shares, which it would not have been able to issue until 2022. There was significant amount of pushback on various social media platforms against that share authorization proposal. Comments were varying in that some people said they were outright voting against the authorization. Others said that they were going to wait until the last minute to vote in the hopes that there was a short squeeze beforehand. They were saying if there was a short squeeze prior to voting, they would vote in favor of the share authorization So on July 6, AMC announced it was taking the share authorization proposal off the table completely, and it wouldn't be asking shareholders to authorize any more shares in 2021. And in taking it off the agenda, Aaron said that what the shareholders thought was important to him and to AMC, and that AMC didn't want to perceive when there was such a split among the shareholders. For the meeting, based on the math that I did from AMC's SEC filing, Over 68% of the shares are represented, but that number includes the broker non-votes. So for your listeners, Andrew, who may be students, when I'm talking about broker non-votes, I mean the shares are held in street name by a broker or bank for which the beneficial owner of the shares did not provide instructions on how to vote on non-routine matters. Brokers only have discretionary voting power on routine matters, such as authorizing the company's auditor. And are really just represented at the meeting for purposes of voting on those routine matters. 
If the broker non-votes were not included, in other words, if all the proposals had been non-routine, the number of shares present in voting was just over 30% of the outstanding shares, meaning that AMC would not have had a quorum had it not been for the broker non-votes. So this is pretty significant as it goes back to the point that Sergio was making. During the meeting and after the meeting last week, there were a number of social media posts in which people were very upset that they did not have access to the meeting online. They didn't understand that the meeting was only held in person and that it wouldn't be broadcast, even though the proxy materials never mentioned anything about it being broadcast. So in response, Aaron announced that its quarterly earnings call, which is going to be on August 9th, would be a webcast. And for the first time ever, it's going to take questions from individual retail investors on the call and that people could submit questions via Say Technologies app. On the app, you can see the questions which have already been submitted thus far. And in my opinion, they're pretty great. Uh, They're asking about different strategies for strengthening and expanding AMC's business. They also have some really fascinating suggestions for AMC. A few that caught my eye focused on gaming in particular and asked whether AMC has plans for hosting gaming events in collaboration with other companies. And there was also another great question which asked about what is the hardest challenge with having so many individual retail investors. So it should be really interesting to see not only how the webcast unfolds, but also to see the impact of retail investors on AMC in the future. My penultimate question might be hard to answer at this stage because it might still be early days, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether wireless investors are a good thing or a bad thing in terms of market efficiency, in terms of efficient allocation of capital, market integrity, normative social concerns, all those things. I'm sure the jury's still out to some extent, but what have you seen so far? Do you have any preliminary thoughts there? Thank you for the question, Andrew. As you said, this is not really like in the scope of what we have been researching. So I would probably use your question to provide an answer, possibly a slightly different question, really, which is what's the relevance of having the voice of retail investors taken into consideration? And I think this goes back to what Christina was saying. When I said that companies need to provide incentives to retail investors to participate in corporate governance and in shareholder meetings, what I meant was not incentives maybe in some economics terms, but it is an incentive to be engaged more as a way to be part of a system. And that means being listened to. So what we are seeing now is a CEO, with respect to AMC, is a CEO that is giving shareholders, giving retail investors, of course, a possibility to be heard, to be listened to, even outside the shareholder meeting. So I think what's really important is the role that the average person can have in corporate governance, but also the role that the average person can have in the communication and the dialogue with companies. I think this is very important to make, let's say, the corporate sector serve citizens, serve the average citizen as well. So I don't know how to answer your question about markets, because that's not really something we have been looking at. And I think it will require a deep uh, analysis and deep investigation. But I believe that with respect to the corporate sector, having the voice of the average people heard by companies will enhance the ability of corporations to take into consideration the interest, the view, 
the goals of the average person. Even if in case that's not a real change, that really is something that plays a role in making corporate governance closer to the average person. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from your paper? I think something very important is that there is still a lot of work to be done in order to really understand what the role of retail investors is and may be. Christina and I are trying to contribute to this investigation with our research. We have a couple of pieces in the works stemming out of corporate governance gaming. In a paper tentatively titled Wireless Investors, we explore the dynamics of the movement that would allow wireless investors to provide a central role in corporate governance to the average person, as well as to bring corporations to serve the interests of a wide range of stakeholders and the planet. In another paper tentatively titled Wireless Shareholders Meetings, we investigated structural obstacles that prevent investors from actively participating in corporate governance. And we discuss legislative reforms that could enhance retail investors' engagement with particular emphasis on their role in shareholder meetings. So this goes back to what I discussed a moment ago, how shareholders' meetings can facilitate that the voice of retail investors and of the average person, in a way, is listened to. So these are... Two papers we are working on. So for us, the research hasn't finished. Corporate governance gaming is only the first article we have been planning to write on this topic. And we believe that retail investors and the engagement of retail investors in corporate governance will be a hot topic in corporate law for at least a few years. Our guests today have been Christina Sauter professor of law at Louisiana State University, and Sergio Gramido-Ricci, lecturer at Monash University. We've discussed their article, Corporate Governance Gaming, The Power of Retail Investors, which is forthcoming in the Nevada Law Journal. I'll have a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Christina, Sergio, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.